Good morning. Nice to see all of you. Nice to be seen by those watching online. Um, we are continuing in the season of Epiphany. As you might remember, it's a season of God revealing and of our discovering just who Jesus is. Uh, it's the third week in a row now that we'll be taking a look at Mark chapter 1. And we saw last week that Mark is building his case. Uh, he's amassing the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And we are to draw this conclusion about Jesus as Mark's readers, uh, and therefore to trust and follow Jesus because Jesus is the one upon whom the Spirit uh, descended after his baptism. He is the one over whom the voice spoke he is the one gathering now the, his community of followers. He is the one who is casting out demons. And, and really, if we were to go through Mark all the way to chapter 8, uh, Mark is building the case story by story, teaching by teaching, miracle after miracle, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it all culminates with Peter articulating the point that Mark has been making. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And so you would expect when Mark is making this case to us or we're, the church is selecting readings to make this case on, and during Epiphany, we would, we would see something remarkable, right? We would we'd see Jesus calming the storm. We would see uh, Jesus turning water to wine or feeding the 5,000, something just spectacular. What we've got this morning seems a little mundane. Uh, just... Um, you know, he heals some people and he says his prayers and he walks to uh, another village to teach. Now, if I got to heal people like this, it would not seem ho-hum, but it's, it's, it's told with some nonchalance. You know, it kind of just feels like an ordinary day in the life of Jesus. The question, then, is if Mark is trying to make this spectacular case that Jesus is Lord, then why would he include such an ordinary vignette? And I think we have to remember that Mark is not only aiming to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's wooing us to follow Jesus as the Son of God, uh, tr to trust Jesus and love him personally as the Son of God. And so to that end, Mark gives us three quick snapshots, three glimpses at the wonderfully and approachably humble character of the mighty Son of God. And we see in this short passage the humility of Jesus as pastor, as prayer, and as preacher. Pastor, prayer, and preacher. So first, as pastor. We don't often think of Jesus uh, as a pastor, but we see that in this selection. Uh, remember last week, uh, this, is, this comes right after that, that section. Jesus and his disciples have just come uh, from the synagogue after Jesus' astounding teaching. And then Jesus powerfully casts out a demon in front of everyone. Everyone's just blown away. And if you go to Capernaum, and you can, uh, you can and you can go see uh, right there on the, on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, that you can see the ruins of both the synagogue and of Peter's house. And they are not 75 yards from one another. Now, it was not a very big city. And I just point that out to show 
that not a lot of time would have passed between the teaching and the healing in the synagogue and the return to Peter's house. And I just think if I was one of those disciples, I'd get to Peter's house and I'd still be high-fiving and chest-bumping and saying, that was awesome! But Jesus, Jesus didn't take a single minute for any sort of self-congratulations or uh, adulation or, or a pat on the back. Or he just, he, he's not focused on himself at all. C.S. Lewis once famously said that humility is not thinking, of, uh, thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And Jesus comes into the house and he's just fresh off this massive display of divine authority. And his focus is immediately on Peter's sick mother-in-law. Not on himself, on the mother-in-law. And you can just imagine his, the kindness in his eyes and the smile in his beard as he lifts her, uh, takes her hand and lifts her up and she's 98.6 degrees all of a sudden and, and in her gratitude she starts to make them something to eat like a good Jewish mother-in-law would have. And then it's sundown. And after the, that was, it was after, once the sun goes down, the Sabbath is over. So it's, it's legal in that sense to, to carry your sick around town. And so they, it was at sundown, they brought, everybody brought Jesus, the sick, and the demon possessed, and, uh, and their family and friends. And, and, and with patience and kindness, with like personal attention to each one, he makes them well in body and in spirit. He's showing them what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. The late great commentator Harry Ironsides wrote, Jesus performed no useless miracles, no merely spectacular wonders. He was not a magician seeking to astonish people by his mystic power over the elements or over the minds of men. In all that he did, he had in view the Father's glory and the blessing of mankind. In all he did, he had in view the Father's glory and the blessing of mankind. In other words, he loved God and he loved his neighbor. And we know from our passage last week that his fame did spread throughout the region, but we also know that Jesus never promoted himself. His ministry was only ever for the glory of the Father and the blessing of those who needed His touch. We also know from passages like this, and there are many where Jesus heals the sick, that it's not a promise for us of miraculous healing. Now, I do absolutely believe that at times Jesus comes and heals the sick. It seems to be more the exception than the rule. I can't, frankly, figure out the pattern. But I know he's present with us in uh, sickness and in health. But these passages are to us a demonstration that Jesus has come to undo the work of sin and Satan through his life and through his death. And so to that righteous end, Jesus is giving Peter's mother-in-law and all the people of Capernaum humble pastoral care par excellence. 
because that is his character. So we see the humility of Jesus as a, as a pastoral presence. We also, second, we see the humble character of Jesus as one who prays. Would have said as intercessor. That doesn't start with a P. So he's a prayer. The sick had, uh, hadn't come until sundown. So it must have been very late when Jesus got to bed. And yet he still gets up uh, in the dark. Right? Very, very early. Wanders out from town to find some alone time to pray before the, the day gets hectic. And there's no fanfare about it. We don't know what Jesus said in this prayer. He just was going to spend time with his Father. He could not and he would not do without that. Jesus' focus is not on himself but on the Father. And you remember over in the Gospel of John when Jesus says things repeatedly like, I only do what I see the Father doing. Or I and the Father are one. And there is certainly a very deep Trinitarian aspect to what Jesus is saying there. The nature of God is and always is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's an elemental sense in which Jesus and the Father are one because that's the nature of God. One one God and three persons. But I think there's also, there must be a devotional sense about Jesus' statements like that. I only see what the Father is doing because the man, Jesus, from Nazareth is in constant fellowship with the Father. And Mark shows us why. Because he gets up at four in the morning and goes to say his prayers. And prayer is where Jesus brings uh, to the Father his deepest concerns. And prayer is where he receives his marching orders for the day. This is where he gathers his strength and is reminded of who he is It's where he maintains the humility to resist the temptation um, to glory in the fawning of the crowd. Remember, they wanted to make him king, some of them. Jesus prays. And he he seems to need prayer more than he needs sleep. I myself have not reached that level of spiritual maturity. But prayer is his fuel and his food. And he will not do without it. I got a picture of this uh, not too long ago from your associate rector of what it might look like in our lives. Trent was in the office and he got a little upset over something. Um, you might not have realized that priests get upset, but it happens on rare occasion. Uh, Trent was gone for a little while. I got his permission to say this, but he was gone for a little while and, he, um, and then he came back and he was calm and he had a good frame of mind. And, I thought, man, gosh, you know, maybe he went to the bar or he went, you know, look on Facebook. He had some, some rant missive that he'd get off his chest. Or none, none of that. And I asked him, he said he'd, he had just gone to spend some time in worship. That he was just praying and singing and, and telling God that God was awesome. And in that connection to God, he got some clarity on the issue at hand and the anger went away. And it was instructive to me. And a great example of what humble prayer looks like uh, in our lives. Jesus um, prayed to keep himself grounded and focused on the Father. And so we have uh, seen Jesus' humility as a pastor and as as a prayer. And we see it again as a preacher. And it's probably, you know, just barely daybreak. The sun just coming up over those Galilean hills and... And, and Simon Peter finds Jesus. He says they've been searching for him. And he says to Jesus, everybody's looking for you. 
Because Simon Peter, man, he's got, a, he's got a plan. He sees an opportunity here. You know, we, we got some momentum, Jesus. We, everybody's talking about you, and, and you're the man of the moment. We're going to ride this train. We're going to capitalize. And Jesus does not get caught up in the hype. He just says, let's go to the neighboring towns because they need the message too. That's why I came, in fact. And it's the message that's important. And you remember a few weeks ago, we heard what that message is, right? We repent and believe the good news. And the message was never for Jesus an entree to fame and fortune. The message is the mission. I mean, the miracles are what keeps the, the crowd clamoring for Jesus. They're what draw people's attention. In a sense, they authenticate the message, but, but the message is the mission. That's Jesus' primary interest. That is why I've come, he says. So let's go tell more people the message. It's another way here that we see Jesus is not focusing on himself, but what others need. Uh, as the Son of God, he certainly uh, had every right to be focused on himself. But he is focused instead on the Father's glory and the blessing of mankind. He's focused on the reason he came, which was to undo the work of sin and Satan. Pastor, prayer, preacher, for the glory of God, for the blessing of mankind, always and forever. And remember, uh, Mark, remember Mark's purpose in showing us this. It's not to show us that Jesus was a great guy or to shame you and me into being humble. Shame doesn't create humility. Mark is building the case that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. But to see this mighty Savior's character, that he is humble, that he is not concerned with garnering glory for himself, to see that he is individually concerned for those who need his touch. I mean, at least for me, that sure makes him attractive. You know, to not just to know that he is approachable in theory, but it makes me want to approach him and to know him. And it helps me understand, I think, why the disciples just left everything and followed him immediately. Remember the invitation that he gives in, in Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me uh, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I want you to think about the implications of a God that has such power that he can create the vast expanse and the in tiny intricacies of the universe with just his spoken word. That he possesses such authority that the demons roll over before him, the storms calm at his bidding, and therefore he has every right to demand, with all his cosmic power, unwavering obedience and unceasing sacrifice. And yet, he is instead just more interested in helping Peter's mother-in-law than he is in hearing the cheers of the crowd. And now think of how this mighty, humble Savior is interested in you. And finally, consider that it was his humble insistence that he not use his power for himself that actually ultimately sent him to the cross for us. He could have called upon legions of angels to rescue him. Instead, he called out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so, I just want to close, I'm just, just two questions to, to close, to leave you with, to ponder. 
Does seeing the humble character of this mighty Savior make him even more attractive and approachable for you? Does seeing his character as humble make him more attractive and approachable? And second, what could this humble Savior do in you and through you? Amen.